A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Daniel Storey, the author economist, and by Tony Hodson of The Coach's Voice. Perfection by definition is impossible in professional sport. Even the best make a slight slip every now and again. We're talking about degrees of excellence. Liverpool lost one league game last season and still lost the title. Will the fight between them and Manchester City be even closer this time around. What do you think, Dan? It can't be much closer, but I think we're going to get a repeat, yes. Both in terms of those two nip and tuck, or nip and nip as it was towards the end of last season with them, that onslaught of victories, but also the huge cosmic gap to the rest, because they do already look by far and away the best two teams in the Premier League, and there's next to no evidence that that will change at all. Mm. Is that a good thing for the Premier League? Tony, do you think? I think it's a better thing than there just being a one-horse race. I think we've had a few titles in Premier League history where teams have run away with it. I'm thinking of a couple of Chelsea under Mourinho. Um, I think as long as there are two teams going for it, whether that's Liverpool or Manchester City now or Arsenal Man United as it has been in the past, it has to be a positive. The issue that I would have, and I say this even as a Liverpool fan, um, which I should get out of the way sooner <laughs> rather than later, is that at times last season, because the two teams were so much better than everyone else. The gap was almost a negative. Both teams were winning every game. As a Liverpool fan, I remember saying, if City had to win this title, they're going to end up having to have won the last 14, was it 14, 13 mm-hmm. or 14 games of the season? And they really did it at a canter. We look at the games already this season and think, Manchester City dropping points at home to Spurs, is that already decisive? I mean, it's crazy to think so early in the season that a two-point gap, I mean, it won't be, but... The fact that we're even thinking about it because these two teams mm. are just so far ahead of the rest. Yeah, because the standards they're setting you know, are by definition again record-breaking, aren't they, in terms of Liverpool, 13 on the bounce. Only two sides at the end of August have actually hung on to win in the Premier League over the last 12 or so years, mm. the two Chelsea times in 2010-2015. Are Liverpool capable of winning the league? Yeah, they are, because the pace they set last season albeit that that lead that they established was eroded by Manchester City, but eroded by arguably the strongest Premier League team in history. Um, so yes, they're, they're more than capable. I think, I think it will take a weakness on City's part rather than just Liverpool's relentlessness because we know what Liverpool can do. They've done it since the start of last season. In fact, the front line has, has done it since the start of 2017-18. Uh, Stats in that are amazing, aren't they? Yeah, 169 goals in 115 games for those 
just for those three players since the start of 17-18, which is ludicrous. So it will take Manchester City weakness, whether that's a, a prioritisation of the Champions League, which they desperately want to win as a club, or if it's injuries, and obviously I merit Laporte is injured, and I think he's probably their best defender. But even so, they're scoring three and a half goals a game, so it, it takes a, a, a pretty significant drop-off for them to suffer any real lapse in form. Because mm, we're seeing, aren't we, Tony, Liverpool's intensity and movement are basically killing teams off. They're wearing them down very quickly. They are. Similarly with City, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, City have had that for a few seasons. They they seem to manage their workload across the team really well. Liverpool actually are moderating their approach. I think they they went to the Champions League final two seasons ago, which they lost to Real on the back of a this wave of attacking football where they just battered teams and then kind of held on a little bit. Last season was slightly more controlled. They kept possession for longer periods. They were less aggressive in their attacking, still as aggressive in their pressing, but when they had possession, they didn't move it quite as quickly as they had done. Uh, and this season, again, we've seen the development of this, this high line, which in my view is Klopp attempting to lessen the workload on the rest of the team. They still want to win it back, but they want to win it back in a smaller area on the pitch. Take the risk that the ball over the, over the top isn't going to cause them too much damage. They've flirted with that already this season. But I think Klopp thinks that overall... If Van Dijk's there and you've got Robertson and Alexander-Arnold recovering back with kind of the telescopic Fabinho, Henderson and Aldum, he's, he's backing them to do that. And mm. if you're scoring three goals a game, again, yeah. it can go wrong once, maybe even twice a game, and you get punished both times, which is very unusual, and you're still winning the game. So you know, there's a heck of a, a wiggle room in, in Manchester City and Liverpool for, for making errors, and the reality is there's, they're not making them at the moment. Mm. You look at, you know, when we talk about Klopp, we always concentrate on the man management aspects of it. We saw it again with the, the spat between you know, Sa- um, Salah and, and Mane at the weekend. Do we sometimes overlook the tactical nous of, of Klopp? Yeah, but I think that's probably by Klopp's own design. I think he, he's perfectly happy to have this, this front and this kind of facade and this cheery or manic persona that he presents to to the media presents you know to supporters as well I think he's more than happy for that to be the the headline news because it is the headline because it's the the interesting story um it's the human side of it but yeah I think we probably do overlook those tactics and we overlook his his ability to motivate players not just through um sheer will of his own personality but through arranging him on the pitch in a in a very logical and very sensible way and long may that continue for him and Liverpool because it's very easy to, to for the for their their current state to have become normalized you know three years ago in his first full season this wasn't Liverpool you know they finished eighth yeah so it's, it's very quickly become normalized and I think that's that's purely because of the the weight of his personality that we we take that conclusion from it while overlooking what he's done with in training those forwards, yeah. He also, like, like Guardiola, has absolute belief in the football that he plays and his tactics. The Arsenal game the other week, you look at the way they played and Arsenal, of course, packed, packed central areas and let Alexander-Arnold and Robertson have the ball. There was no sense with Liverpool that, that was, they weren't going to stop doing that. They were going to look for different avenues. Guendouzi and Willock were having to do so much work going in and out. That in the end, the view was, if Arsenal keep playing like this, keep defending like this, they're going to tire out. And they were exhausted in the second half mm. when Liverpool took the game away from them. And then you get to the point that a winning team is a happy team. Um, mm. You know, Klopp's management appears to be brilliant, but he also manages a team that wins every week. Mm. But it's also good that they've got that edge, that you can have two of their principal players you know, having a little bit of a fallout. 
Yeah, well, Mane's already looking at the golden boot. He's already thinking about that. He's thinking, pass me the ball. I want to, he wants to be the top scorer in the Premier League. Imagine having two players who want to be the top scorer in the Premier League and neither of them being your central striker. Mm. It's no. powerful. How important is Fabinho's emergent as a, as, a, as a real pivotal player in that midfield? Hugely so, if, um, especially because of the kind of the constantly moving cogs around him. He's that kind of central, almost still point. And that's a poor description because he also does a lot of running and a lot of pressing. But he is that Mr. Dependable in the centre of the pitch. And it took a while. I, I doubted him in the first few months. We saw it with Oxlade-Chamberlain. We saw it with Andrew Robertson that it can take quite a long time for players to get up to, to the speed and the the standards that Jurgen Klopp demands. And I did worry for him. And, and I think we still can be a little bit worried about Naby Keita in a similar position. But yeah, he's, he, he's just another one that Liverpool have this ability to drag players up to their level. Whereas other clubs in the Premier League, even within the top six, Manchester United's an obvious example, they tend to drag the players down to theirs. Fabinho is just, within six months, looks like he's been at Liverpool for six years. There's so many players that look like that. Trent Alexander-Arnold comes in the side and looks like that. Robertson comes in so quickly. It's as if they've always been at Liverpool and they've been almost designed to play for that club and that manager. And the mm. faith in Klopp is remarkable. When Robertson arrived, I was very happy. I, I liked what I saw of him. And, you know, we had Alberto Moreno, who was <coughs> um, not defensively particularly strong. Um, and yet Klopp bided his time with him. You know, it was a good eight, ten weeks before Robertson was introduced to the team. Fabinho's first away start in the Premier League last season was at Arsenal. He looked off the pace. Mm. He looked like he couldn't operate in that as, as a one in the, at the depth, in, you know, in that deep role in midfield. And it seems crazy to say, bearing in mind what Liverpool achieved in the second half of last season, but in, from the new year onwards, he was arguably Liverpool's best and most consistent player. Mm. Um, it's remarkable, really. And, and you, know, you suddenly look at him there and you think, why was Henderson ever used in that role? Yeah. Let's enter the realms of fantasy just, to, just for a couple of seconds anyway. Um, you've grown up with the club. If you offered a Liverpool fan a choice between being Premier League champions or successfully defending the Champions League, what would they take? Premier League champions every time, without question. It's a drought that haunts the Liverpool fans, uh, the Anfield crowd, just like it did at Old Trafford um, before they won it after not as long a gap as Liverpool have endured now. Um, you'd like both, of course, but it's this strange thing last season where Liverpool and Manchester City won the, the trophies that the other one wanted more, probably. Mm. Um, not to say Liverpool, I mean, you know, Liverpool winning the Champions League was a superb effort by all and everyone loved it, but they take the Premier League every time, wouldn't they? Even, even Mo Salah last season admitted that, kind of surprisingly, caught everyone a little bit off guard, but he said, look, I know the fans would rather win the Premier League, so that's what we're going to try and do. It was still a very successful season, but I think we can add another layer onto that. Having already won the Champions League after the failure against Madrid the year before, clearly there is now a, a, a huge, huge collective demand to win the Premier League. Yeah, You're already looking at the fixtures as well, aren't you? Liverpool go to Chelsea in a few weeks, Man City go to Everton, but even those fixtures just, just look like wins. So you look at Liverpool, Man City in early November... Mm. You know, you're already the appetite is already wetted, isn't it? Yeah, we're back to where we began perfection <laughs> <Yeah>. and all. <laughs> yeah, because I suppose if you look at um, City, there's almost a, there would almost be a symmetry in them winning the Champions League because obviously that fits in with the strategic aims of the ownership mm. um, and allowing not allowing but Liverpool winning the Premier League. Yeah, although. <laughs> 
everyone involved at Manchester City will say that there's <laughs> there's not necessarily an either or. Um, doing the double would be, if not expectation, would certainly be the aim. And and for Pep Guardiola as well, you know, he he still has this slight taint on his reputation that he hasn't won a, a Champions League without Leo Messi and outside of Barcelona and, and that probably perfect environment for him, he will be desperate to change that. I think Manchester City supporters have long held on to this, partly because of their relationship with the UEFA, but also partly because of how they deem the Champions League, that the Premier League will always be more important. But you put them in a Champions League final and they will might feel different. Uh, but yeah, they won't be thinking about either or. They'll be thinking about both. Mm. There is a pressure on City in the Champions League, though. The last couple of seasons, the City faithful would, would probably claim that Pep has messed it up himself. He picked Gundogan in a strange role against, uh, against Liverpool Anfield two years ago. Mm. His team selection away at Tottenham, regardless of what happened in the second leg, his team selection in that first leg didn't look mm. like a man who was going all out for the Champions League when he then picked a stronger team to play in the FA Cup semi-finals that weekend. Um, there's a theory that he's just overthinking it. Mm. You know, you think about what Manchester City do week in, week out to teams. Um, and particularly the way at the end of last season, Tottenham's form generally, I mean, they kind of went, got through the back door into the Champions League final, but their, their league form fell off a cliff a little bit. It hasn't started much better this season. City fans look back at that quarter final and they're not happy. So there is pressure on Pep mm-hmm. to get it right without question. You, you work with coaches on a daily basis in, on the site. Um, can you give us some insight into how revered or respected Pep is amongst his peers? Hugely. I think he's just taken it to a new level. I think he's just taken... The one thing with, with the coach's voice, having, we've spoken to, between the whole team, over 150 coaches in 18 months. And the one thing that is absolutely incontrovertible for all of them is that they are absolutely obsessed with football. They're dedicated to a point that you can't imagine. We have this thing in the media now where we have, sometimes it's, it's, it's a lazy approach to think that managers just they don't mind getting sacked because they get their pay off and they go and do a bit of travel and then take the next job that's on offer. Um, they are desperate every time they leave a job to be back in the game. Absolutely, all of them, all of them. Um, and they're also much more tactically aware than you think. They're constantly looking and I think if you're, if you're not keeping an eye on... The, the development in the game, then I think you, you, you get left behind very quickly. Um, and in the last five to ten years, certainly since Pep's been in the Premier League, coaches in the UK, they can't stop watching his team, they can't stop watching Klopp, Pochettino the same. Um, you know, they're rock stars, these guys. And I, my view is that the coaches around them are being lifted to higher levels as a result. Mm. And if you look at their staffs, you can see succession planning and operation. Arteta's going to be a, a coach, head coach manager very, very soon, isn't he? Yes, and, and, and you know that's the legacy of, of the greatest managers is that not even the managers around them now, but 10, 15, 20 years down the line, we're still quoting their methods. We're still quoting their methodologies. And you know you think of the coaches like you know, Renus Michels and Johan Cruyff and Brian Clough and Shankly and Busby. And these are managers who, even after they've passed, are still, you know, are still quoted and are still relied upon because they were trailblazers and, and groundbreakers and Guardiola is one of those, there's no doubt about that. Um, Pochettino, the same, but even he might think that he's learnt from a Bielsa yep. type. or yep. A, yep. So that, that is what the best managers do. They, they don't just affect their own generation, but they affect the next. And, and, and Mikel Arteta and others are the ones to carry that flame on, yeah. You mm. can see it, can't you? When uh, For the Community Shield, 
the new rule that was brought in about, about the goal kick and defenders being allowed to be in the box. And you could see in the, in the not the first Premier League game, in the Community Shield, already how Manchester City were trying to work that rule to their advantage. And you can just imagine, can't you, Guardiola and Arteta sat in a dark room somewhere in the <laughs> summer, in a dark room with, you know, with a couple of drinks, just chatting away, trying to work out how they could yeah. best take advantage of it. it. That's what you need to do. Yeah. To be a top coach, you need to be on it all the time. Obsession is, is, is the right word, isn't it? Um, you know, you mentioned Pochettino um, Tony, um, you know, he has cut a very disenchanted figure in the last couple of weeks. And he's talking about um, players not being, to use his words, 100% focused on Tottenham. What do you read into that? Um, yeah, I mean, it certainly seems to be the case. The, the Jan Vertonghen situation at the start of the season played very well yesterday, actually, I thought. Um, certainly better than some others. Seemed difficult. Christian Eriksen, I mean, I remember Tottenham's first game of the season at against Aston Villa, they were absolutely terrible. We were talking before, weren't we, about teams just, with, with these teams now, just sitting back and saying, come at us if you want. We'll, we'll sit in a low block. Without Ericsson there to pull strings, Tottenham looked pretty ordinary. Um, they actually didn't look brilliant yesterday, despite going 2-0 up. Um, and you just wonder whether getting to the Champions League final last season masked a few ills around the club. You know, players are having their heads turned. Some of them are not as young as they used to be. Um, even, even Harry Kane doesn't look overly happy with life at the moment so and if that's the case you know talking earlier about you know a happy club is a winning club and vice versa just doesn't seem to be the case at Tottenham at the moment mm. what about actually on the pitch there does seem to be almost like a lack of balance within it uh, I thought Son when he he, mm. he was exceptional I thought against Arsenal but are enough of their big players playing like big players not really at the moment uh, they do have and have had fairly systematic injury problems. You know, they a list of players that didn't start yesterday includes Deli Ali, includes Giovanni La Celso, includes Tango and Dombele. Uh, and they were the players, or, you know, Sessignon, they are players brought into the club to refresh that mood. So I think it's probably understandable that mood hasn't been refreshed just yet. But there is a, there is a sense and there is, a I think, a message gone round Premier League managers that... Spurs are brilliant on the counter-attack and the good bits they did yesterday were when they were allowed to counter-attack. Yep. Mm. But if you sit deep and try and defend them, then they can struggle to break you down. Kane is brilliant at that pass on the turn to Son and then getting into the box to meet the cross. But actually, when you put four or five men behind the ball, he can struggle because he, he likes to touch the ball. So he drops deep and he, he drops deeper and deeper and suddenly every Tottenham player is in front of that defence and you can marshal them. So they have got an issue there, but I think we probably have to reserve judgment this season until those players coming back and the new players are kind of fully integrated into the system. Mm. But it's pretty clear they've got an issue at, at right back. You know, <laughs> Sanchez played, he took, like it, took to it like a duck to treacle, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It reminded me of my own efforts at right back. <laughs> and I was terrible. Um, yeah, there are problems. And, you know, you're talking about playing out from the back and from the goal kicks. I mean, they were awful yesterday. And particularly, you talk about Harry Kane. Teams don't want to go long. It's not very fashionable. But actually, if, if you're drawing teams in and you've got a guy up top who can actually take balls and you've got runners off him and Son, as you say, is superb at that, do it. But they just seem to be incessant in trying it and it just looked terrible. Um, mm. Yeah. Let's look at Arsenal, Dan, if we may. Mm. Um, Granite. Jacko, <laughs> is he long for this world in the Premier League world? He, he yeah, he, he he should be now 
emphatically persona non grata, I think. Um, not just because he was poor again against Tottenham and dived into that wild challenge. Not just because he is repeatedly unable to control his own petulance and aggression. Um, but also because of the, the rise of Matteo Guendouzi, who I think was probably the best player in the North London derby. And does what Jacker does better and does it with a more refined air around him you know there is a time for chaos there is a time for naked aggression with what you're doing but it is not the first half of a, a North London derby when you're already losing 1-0 at home uh, and Guendouzi was the, the the leader of that midfield in the second half when that should be Jack as well now he was a captain there's been such a huge turnover of players at Arsenal I looked at it the F, since the FA Cup final in 2017 there's only four members of that 80 man squad left and Jack was the only one that started yesterday and he was captain that means he has to be the senior member of that midfield. And to look at it, if you'd, if you'd just looked at those on shirts and performances, you'd have had him down as the raw, tempestuous child of the midfield. And he shouldn't be that anymore. So, yeah, that should be him, especially if they can, if Emery can find a way to bring Ceballos into a, a three-man midfield, yeah. Mm. And yeah. what about Willock? I think he's, he's really impressed me in terms of just adding a bit of almost... Not naivety, but just just enthusiasm. Well, energy, yeah. yeah. I mean, his you know, his performance against Liverpool. He and he and Guendouzi got through so much work. Um, there are there are question marks about whether Arsenal will, will stick with the formation they played yesterday. Whether it, whether it gets the best out of Aubameyang, um, we're not sure. And, and Jose Mourinho said some very interesting things after the game about that. Um, but if they are going to play a midfield three, then you can see you're quite right. Guendouzi looks the absolute natural player to sit sit in, the, in mm. as the deepest of the three because that defence needs protecting doesn't oh it? it does and actually you wonder whether they might play two there because Torreira actually looked a little bit lost in a slightly more advanced role um, whether they can play Guendouzi and Torreira play Ceballos in front of them in a, in a slightly more number 10 role or, or dare I say Mesut Ozil <laughs> if he ever steps on a pitch again um, so there are there are definitely definitely shoots there at Arsenal I mean the problem is that Xhaka isn't is by no means the only impetuous player in that no. in that starting team some of whom are actually behind him so that would be their problem but it would it would help to have somebody who isn't quite as rash in front of the defence and that would look like Guendouzi wouldn't it yeah is there is there subtext to this and you, you mentioned it right at the start that if you look at Tottenham and Arsenal they're the clubs who should be challenging not just for top four but for top two and they're nowhere near it no, they are. The gap has grown again, um, because those teams are all Chelsea, Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham. They are all in a form of transition, whether on a downward curve or on an upward curve. And Manchester City are just bobbling along at the top of their game. Tottenham are the ones I have the most faith in, along with Arsenal ahead of Chelsea, Manchester United, because of the sheer or the combination of sheer potential and excellent manager. Um, I think there are doubts, significant doubts about the other two. Um, but neither of them are in the same ballpark as, mm. as Manchester City and Liverpool. And there is a newfound lack of fear in teams going away to those clubs that there wasn't, I don't think, a year ago. I think teams went a year ago to Old Trafford and Stamford Bridge and the Emirates and thought, well, if we can nick a point or we can even only lose 1-0, we'll get our points yeah. elsewhere. You've now got teams like Sheffield United 2-0 down at Stamford Bridge and still getting back into the game. So the fear is gone and once that goes, it's very, very hard to get it back without some pretty wholesale changes. Yeah, Leicester were arguably the better team at Stamford Bridge mm. as well, weren't they? Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. Teams, Man United and Tottenham are both counter-attacking teams. There's just no question about it anymore. Mm. Arsenal and Chelsea probably slightly more nuanced. 
but they each have problems defensively, which means they're very vulnerable. Mm. And we talk about Arsenal, but Chelsea's defence doesn't doesn't look great to me, certainly without without Rudiger in it. There were plenty of people before the start of the season, plenty of good judges, <coughs> talking about who could challenge Man City and Liverpool, whether any of them any of those teams were primed for a challenge. I mean, we're three, we're four weeks in, and those people look crazy now. Mm. The top two are miles clear, mm. aren't they? Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. If you talk, if you let's look at Man United. Yeah, Paul Scholes talked about them needing another four, to four or five transfer windows to get some sort of order to it. Have you been optimistic? <laughs> he might be. I mean, the one thing, and I've said it on here before, is the one caveat I'd make is that I don't think they've got a particularly good manager in place. I think they've got a manager who, slightly ironically, might be a better suited for the job above him, the director of football role, where he can rely on that nostalgia, he can clear the decks which he's trying to do but until you get a manager who is a very capable tactician I don't think the best players are going to want to join Manchester United while they're out of the Champions League because there's no pull factor anymore and they've seen a a huge number of high profile players come in and struggle so it's a hard pass to potential signings now and they are chronically short of attacking options I was looking at I mean Martial's injured at the moment but Marcus Rashford scored he's not number nine though is he no he scored three goals from open play in 21 games which when you're leading the line for a club like Manchester United is is a pitiful return and it's not his fault because I think he's a a quasi wide forward but he's also in his early 20s he's not the man to lead a line and they were one all with Southampton this weekend and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer looks to the bench, ignores Mason Greenwood, who he's been talking up, but who is also only 17, mm. and calls on Jesse Lingard and Emmanuel Matic. And if they are the next cabs <laughs> off the rank, that's not good mm. enough. Yeah. So in that sense, he's paying the price of chaotic recruitment. Utterly chaotic. An unbalanced squad and probably also acquisitive owners. Is that fair? Yeah. On all counts, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think United fans, and I know a few of them, have been devastated with the way the summer went. There are some players there who, for, for whatever reasons, didn't seem to want to be there or the club didn't want them to be there who have left. Uh, Lukaku, Sa- Sanchez, the obvious one, has gone for now. Pogba stayed. They've, they've made however much money they spent on Maguire and Wambisaka. Both look like good signings. I think he's, he's hung his heart on Lindelof as the second centre-back, which is probably the right decision. It'd be handy um, if he won a few balls in the air, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be, yeah. I mean, the, they just expect Harry to win all of those, don't they? Um, Wan-Bissaka's an amazing defender. I mean, I think you know, we'll talk later about who England's best right-back is, but defensively, he's head and shoulders of probably every defender in England. He's incredible. But the problem is further forward. You know, McTominay, again, he's hung his heart on him. He said, he's my man. Actually been impressive, relatively speaking. Uh, Pogba is the best passer at the club by an absolute mile, but takes possession very close to the back four and, and isn't always that reliable in keeping it. And then, yeah, further forward, they're just desperately short. They need more players there. So the question is whether Solskjaer will have time, whether he'll get four or five transfer windows. My guess is that he probably won't. Mm. I think if, you, if, if all else fails with your recruitment, the first block, if you aren't going to appoint a sporting director, is you have to go out and get the best man manager you can for the job and even if you are a, a you know a, a Solskjaerite you have to concede that he is not the best manager for Manchester United now and maybe never will be uh, you can rearrange the deck chairs if you want until a better manager comes up and Mauricio Pochettino is the obvious shout um, but if they, they even get a sniff that Pochettino might be up for that job they should do it in a heartbeat because he's a he's on a different level 
Mm. I, I mean, imagine they're getting more of a sniff, <laughs> yes. aren't they, at the moment? It, it's interesting, you know, you, you read the runes, uh, you know, Johnny Northcroft was on here last mm-hmm. week, who knows the club very well, and he his view is that they're probably going to stay with him for the season. Yeah. Ben maybe assess the market. What type of manager, because you're looking at maybe three or four managers of appropriate stature mm-hmm. who, are, who are basically they fit the blueprint of a club like Manchester United. Not many, are there? No, there aren't many. And what they need is a, a slightly more nuanced version of, of Jose Mourinho's Sergeant Major Act. I think Mourinho's... I think his intentions, certainly at the start, or in his first year and a half, were, were good, in that it was a squad that needed some discipline. But there's a, there's a fine line between disciplining players and, and scapegoating them and freezing them out. And I think Mourinho pretty clearly went too far on that front. The alternative to doing that through discipline is to do that through tactics and through motivation and man management and coaching. And you look at someone like Jurgen Klopp and Richo Pochettino, who were, were appointed by clubs who were far below Manchester United when, when they mm. came in. And you have to consider that Manchester United made some pretty bad moves. I, I know why they appointed Jose Mourinho. I, I saw that it made some sense at the time, but to then allow him that free reign to freeze players out and pretty much disengage a fair number of key players has left them in a situation where they're basically building from scratch again. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there are three or four managers, but this is Manchester United who... Who would you say they are, by the way? Who are of the appropriate stature? I think if you were going to try and get the toned-down Sergeant Major at, then Diego Simeone is the best in the business at the moment. I think if you were going to go for the manager that best fits the club at the moment, then it's Pochettino every time because he has... He has elements of that, but he also is a, a pretty capable tactician and has experience of the Premier League, which is is something that Manchester United, I think, want when they appoint their next manager. I don't think they will take another lurch into a manager fresh into the country. I think they will try and get a manager with some experience. But mm. Yeah, there's not many. You want to find a manager who's going to instil patterns of play and, and a way that a club plays, <laughs> way that team plays. You know, I'm sure he wouldn't be considered but someone like Daniel Fark who went in at Norwich for the first season they didn't tear up any trees at all in the championship but he had a season he got the players he wanted instilled a style of play and having worked only for a season look what happened in the second season and they may have their problems in the Premier League this season but they're going to give it a great good go and they look to me like they've got good quality and a goal scorer Mm. and everyone knows what style of play they're playing. Chris Wilder at Sheffield United. Doesn't mean you can't have a plan B and a plan C, but you've got to get plan A sorted first. And I think you look at Man United, you look at the way they, they are in possession when they're not on the counter-attack, and there are still massive question marks over what, what, they, what their patterns of play are and what Solskjaer wants them to do. Yeah, yeah, the reality is they played a team at the weekend in Southampton who were desperately struggling last season and sacked Mark Hughes and then appointed a manager in Ralph Hasenhutl who has far more on his CV and far more experience, successful experience than Solskjaer to a job 10, 12, 14 places lower down the Premier League. If they can do that, why can't Manchester United? Why does there have to be this? Why does it either have to be the stellar name or someone that has this DNA that they keep talking about? Actually, that DNA is not a good thing anymore. It's not helping them. It's holding them back, if anything. And it's interesting that you say about you think they'll stay domestic when they make their next appointment, but I just think someone like Ralph Rangnick or yeah. lower down, someone like Julian Nagelsmann, you know, they could get, I think they could get these guys if they wanted them, but 
the question is whether they want them. Mm-hmm. Does, and does the club as a whole know where it's going? That yeah. would be the question. Yeah. Frank Lampard obviously is still going through his honeymoon period at, at, at Chelsea. How long does that period last, do you think? At least this season, I think. I think he's, he, you know, again, genuine question marks over his ability as a coach. He's been doing it just because he's been doing it for one season, not because he's looked to have done anything wrong. But the fans love him. You know, he knows the club inside out. There is a, there is a DNA issue there, I think, which probably is a positive. The transfer ban means that you have to bring, you have to rely on the players at the club. Um, there's clearly a lot of talent. Tammy Abraham scoring goals, Mason Mounts having an impact. You know, Hudson Odoi and Loftus Cheek are both out at the moment. I think the fans will give him at least this. Well, we'll see. It's not the fans that matter, it is, but I think they'll, they'll, they'll cut him a lot of slack. And I think that I think they should. Mm. They seem to be missing Loftus Cheek quite a lot to me. Yeah, the, Lampard's biggest problem at the moment is getting this balance right in midfield. He spoke about it after the Leicester game and said he, he actually held his hands up pretty much after the game and said, "Do you know what? It wasn't good enough second half. We were streaming forward and leaving so much space in behind." And that's unnerving their defence and it's not just the young kids it's unnerving it's unnerving Cesar Aspilicueta who's mm. been there for five, six years mm. uh, This is his worst run in that time isn't it, it is, yeah Easily And he's played in multiple positions and adapted to all of them very well so this is not a, a question of Aspilicueta not being able to adapt to new situations it's the fact that he's being left exposed by the midfield driving on and Lampard has to get that right because last season that was Derby County as well they conceded mm. a lot of goals on the counter-attack <laughs> they conceded a lot of goals because they were desperate to make it pay and get an impetus in the game and he, I think that's a slight naivety in a, in a new manager and I'm sure it'll come but um, yeah he, he's going to be fortunate that he is Mr Chelsea because that will allow him mm. a good deal of goodwill. Am I wrong in being underwhelmed by Pulisic? It's early days I think I mean he, the question mark at the start of the season was that he was hardly tearing up trees at Dortmund last mm. season he wasn't a guaranteed starter in the end mm-hmm. which if you think he's coming into a club like Chelsea, you would expect him to be doing that. And of course, there's an obvious contrast there with Jadon Sancho, who's a slightly different player, but but had a huge impact in what was his first season in a <coughs> league where he didn't speak the language. Mm-hmm. It's early days for Pulisic. There were definite signs against Liverpool in the Super Cup. I thought, I thought he played very well. But again, the, the issue is they're throwing men forward. Yeah. Are they controlling possession quite as well as they should? And is it all just a bit gung-ho? I feel from a bit because it's this transfer fee pressure. You know, he's younger than Mason Mount and he's younger than Tammy Abraham. Mm. But because that's, of the tra- that's lost in the mix. Yes, isn't it? because of the transfer fee pressure, we assume that he will hit the ground running. Whereas actually, he has not controlled that transfer fee. He wanted the move, but yeah, I do feel from a little bit because it will take time. And the hope is that Mount and Abraham can kind of take the pressure off him for a bit and steal the limelight and let him just sort of get on with it because he's also not like for light, but he's also basically being tasked with replacing Eden Hazard's impact, which is <laughs> an impossible task. Yeah. Do you think that the, you know, the tectonic plates at the top of the Premier League are shifting a little bit? You know, I took a punt in our pre-season predictions and, and said that Leicester would finish fourth. Um, they're doing very well. Are they the type of team with the type of coach who could profit from the indifference or the relative indifference of the sort of four to six or four to or two or three to seven or where it would be. Without question, yeah. You know, I think your prediction of fourth was a bit conservative. <laughs> like an easy third. Yeah. We're talking about knowing how teams play. Rogers hasn't hugely adapted the style of play that he inherited, but they've got a rock solid back four. We know who their first choice defence is. Soinku has 
seemed to have slotted in there as the big defender with a big head role that Maguire had. Indeed, he's absolutely crucial for them in that patrolling role in midfield. Uh, Rogers have brought Vardy back. You know, it seems that every Leicester manager tries to pension off Jamie Vardy, and it doesn't go well for him. Rogers just seems to have said he's my number one striker. He still seems to have the pace he's always had. Still winds up defenders. Still gets in behind. And now they've got the, the little bit of gold dust that is James Madison. They've got willing runners either side of that. To me, it looks like a team that know what they're doing. Like I said, they were the better team at Stamford Bridge, I thought, for long periods. They're quietly made a very quiet start season, but they're still unbeaten. Mm. And the third, and I don't see any reason why they shouldn't challenge, having discussed all the problems that are around the other traditional top six clubs. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they finished yeah, top six. I think Manchester United's first choice defence is probably, and goalkeeper is probably better. I think Arsenal's front three is certainly better. And I think that. Chelsea's midfield might well be better, but team on whole team against whole team, Leicester are as good as any of those three. If they keep everyone fit and they've and they've got a young core of players and they haven't got European football, no then European football, yeah. got a real chance, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. You're Gareth Southgate. Do you pick Madison or Mount? I think Madison has probably the next cab off the rank on the basis that it, it just feels like he's waited a little bit longer. But by all accounts, Gareth Southgate is, is more impressed with Mount and has watched him for longer and has in, you know, liked him for longer. The interesting thing is that Madison was not picked last season for England because he was playing as number 10 and Gareth Southgate said, well, I play a 4-3-3, so I'm not going to play a number 10. And Rodgers has kind of pushed him slightly out wide more, yeah. uh, basically to try and get him that England call-up, and it's worked. Mount is, at the moment, very central for Chelsea literally and figuratively uh, so it'll be interesting to see how he would manage to fit in Mount anyway but when you look at Oxlade-Chamberlain back in the squad despite long term injury and you look at Jesse Lingard in that squad there's room for there's room for both ahead of those two in the queue if if they keep up their current form mm. and you, know, you mentioned it earlier on Tony right back Carl Walker's been excused duty for these two matches who is the best who is England's best right back I honestly have no idea. It, it, depends how, it depends how Southgate wants to play. You know, if he is going to play a 4-3-3 with attacking fullbacks, then you'd have to pick Trent Alexander-Arnold. You'd have to. Mm. If you want your fullbacks to be slightly more conservative, then Wan-Bissaka is the best defender of the three. If you want a mix of those, then it's probably still Kyle Walker, isn't it? And he does have huge experience. You know, Alexander-Arnold is defensively something of a weak link, particularly the way Liverpool play. It's partly a function of the way Liverpool play rather than his mm. own failings. Mm. Wan-Bissaka is just like a brick wall. I'm so impressed with him defensively. But, I, so I, yeah, I'm completely fudging it. I've got no idea. Mm. You got any idea? Yeah, I, I, I think when it comes to... If this was a major tournament next week, I think Carl Walker would probably start. Yeah. Um, but there is a, a, a slight sense in Southgate's thinking that we are coming to an end of a, a Carl Walker cycle, perhaps. I mean, he's not old, but the, the pure exuberance of youth behind him, both defensively and in attack with, with the two that Tony <coughs> mentioned, there is a slight sense that we're getting to the end of that cycle. Yeah, He's still the quickest of those three, though, isn't he? Yeah, it? I think so. acceleration's still amazing, but yeah. his final delivery compared to Alexander-Arnold would be massively inferior. But then there aren't many right-backs in the world who've got the same delivery of Alexander-Arnold. I mean, he played a ball over to, I think it was Mane, just kind of just cut inside on his left foot on Saturday against Burnley. It was just absolutely glorious. Interesting to know what Harry Kane thinks, because obviously he played with Kyle Walker at, at Spurs, but the service that Alexander-Arnold can provide from on the cross is exactly what Kane wants. So it'd be, and Southgate is a man who is happy to listen to his players and get their thinking. So it would be interesting if he spoke to you know, his England captain and found out what, exactly what he would prefer in those two. 
I think mm. he'll probably play. He may not, but it looks to me like he's setting out to play a kind of Liverpool model where the number nine drops and you've got two wide players who just fly off the off the back shoulder and cut inside, which would suggest an attacking right back. Mm. So Alexander Arnold probably is his long term thinking, but I, I'm with you, Dan. If you're picking a team tomorrow for a major tournament, you'd probably still just about it's go pretty, pole. It's pretty amazing in general that England have got the you know the reigning Premier League champion at right back, a reigning European champion at right back, and the most expensive right back in in English football history to pick from. It's brilliant. I mean, mm. let's look at the positives rather than the negatives mm. on that. It's a heck of a lot of options. It's not that long ago, we went into a World Cup with Danny Mills as our right back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, one of the things about being an England manager is you're, you're meant to be a fount of all knowledge. Mm-hmm. I just want to end by looking at the broader implications of the changes in the game. And I think it's perfect time to do so when we're in an international break. Gareth basically said, or talked about his fears, that there could be more berries on the horizon. Mm. What sort of warning bells are ringing? I mean, I don't want to be too negative about this, but I think, I don't think the, the warning bells are ringing anymore. I think the siren's going off. I think it's worse than that. I think it's come too far than the warning bells. I think the warning bells came two or three years ago when championship clubs were spending 90% of their revenue on wages rather than 106% now. I think the reality is, is that warning bells have been ignored for too long by, by club owners who were, to some extent, understandably desperate to get their club into the Premier League and, and in doing so were prepared to risk their financial future because they couldn't see a situation where they wouldn't be there. But the figures are staggering, aren't yeah. they? You know, there's a collective daily loss of over one and a half million pounds. Yeah, yeah. and there, there is a... The, the English football is, is unique in the number of, of professional clubs it has in such a small area and yep. for such a small population. Um, but it was sustainable while there was a degree of equality or there was a kind of facade of equality. When, as soon as that facade of equality was pretty forcibly removed we were always heading to a situation where those weakest would struggle to survive without either a huge amount of generosity on the part of club owners or making do on very little and and clubs Mm. are finding that very hard yeah the premier league is a hugely successful business it's globally hugely relevant fantastically well marketed and there's a buck coming here (laughs) but does it have a broader responsibility to the game as a whole? So, in other words, should the Premier League play some role in supporting the pyramid? Or a greater role, let's put it like that. Yeah, something more than nothing would be, would be welcome. I think for, before that is even discussed, you have to look at the way clubs lower down the chain are being run. I would suggest that the Football League needs to answer some questions before the Premier League does, mm. certainly in the case of Berry. As discussed, Berry by name is the only club. You know, Morecambe are potentially in trouble. Bolton, of course. You know, Oldham don't look great. Charlton have an owner that raises questions. Um, Coventry. You know, there are too many of these clubs that just trip off the tongue, and for whatever reason, clubs are not being <coughs> run well. Um, whether that's because owners have been allowed to take over who aren't there for the right reasons, whether they've, you know, they're shooting too high. Um, it misses the misses the problems to start looking at the Premier League. I think, and saying that they should have a responsibility. But if we're, if we're in a culture of rich getting richer, poor getting poorer, what are the implications of that for the Champions League? Now, you know, obviously we're going to go into the autumn. That dominates not just the autumn, but the entire season, the mm. Champions League. There's still a lot of persistent talk about the next evolution being into a Super League, 
closed shop. Yep. Hugely elitist. Yep. I think it would be ruinous. What do you think? I think it would be. But if we get to a stage where the clubs at the top are so determined to go, and let's be frank about this, hold all the power in the cards anyway, uh, then I would almost rather they walked off into the sunset than kept up this pretense that they want to be here and go through the motions. Um, I, I think there is, at the moment, enough force against change to stop it happening. And I think there is, there is a PR backlash that those clubs would be afraid of if they did that not just amongst general supporters, but actually amongst their own supporters as well. Uh, you know, if your only away games are on the continent and your supporters can't travel to see their team as easily, then that's a huge PR no. So I think there's enough against it at the moment. The reality is, is that those big six clubs have long wanted there to be, or would long benefit from issues within the Football League. You know, the idea of B teams, the idea of, of siphoning off as much money as they can they are complicit in this and they cannot pretend that they aren't but they will argue that it's a business now and that the game itself welcomed commercialization and rampant commercialization so it's a bit much to now turn around and say oh hang on a minute we don't like this anymore can you give us a handout they would argue that the game welcomed this and they've just exploited it mm. one of the best voices most reasoned voices in this whole debate i think has been andy holt the owner at accrington stanley mm-hmm. He came up with a, a terrific idea I thought, about a football bank being underpinned by the Premier League, by the Football League and by the FA, a sort of a fund of about 200 million. Does that make sense? On paper, absolutely, yeah. It's one of those things where you, just, you, you read about it and you think, that sounds like a brilliant idea. Why wouldn't it? Why, it, it would work, I, I'm sure it would, but will it happen? No, <laughs> absolutely no the only, at all. The only issue with it is that there's a sense, as with handouts, that if you guarantee a club owner like Steve Dale at Berry, if he'd have known that there was a potential pot for him to dip into <laughs> if it had all gone wrong, would he have just thought, well, there's my perfect backup. I can do exactly what I want and I know that the club's going to get bailed out. So that's my only concern with it. And there are plenty of clubs in, in the lower leagues. It's too easy to be... Well, no, it's not too easy. It is easy to be negative about the state of some clubs. Mm. But there are plenty of clubs, and Accrington are a great example of that, of well-run clubs. That it, you don't have to risk your entire future and the stake of happiness in the community. Mm. Football clubs are community resources, in a way. Mm. Um, you know, we live in an era of public services being absolutely decimated. Football clubs are, in some ways, an ex- a perfect example of a public service. And we've seen with Berry the absolute dismay. You know, they haven't got millions of fans, but the fans they've got are so passionate about it. It was so heartbreaking to see it. Um, I just think, you know, the ills of Berry go, mm. you know, they didn't start with Steve Dale, they ended with Steve Dale, they didn't start with Steve I'd, Dale. I'd rather have an independent regulator mm. that provides governance and regulation and assessment over a magic big pot of such money. As, such as the yeah. EFL, maybe. It, well, yeah. yeah, but if it was... Yes, I take the point. But if it was an independent regulator that, yeah. that had the teeth to implement change and, ass- and make assessments, I think that's to me, is preferable than a, just a big pot of money. Yeah. Well, football looking after its own is a great idea. Should it happen? Certainly. Will it happen? Sadly, I agree with Tony. I doubt it. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.